Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla, and today our special guest is David Sullivan. David is the CEO and founder of Till. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Otto. Of course. So before we start and go into what you're working in now, I'd like sort of to get the audience a general idea as far as who you are as a person, how, you know, what your interests are as an individual. Are you from around here locally, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area? Yeah, I am. So I grew up in the McLean and Arlington area, um, went to Chesterbrook Elementary and then Longfellow and then McLean High School um, and have been around the DMV for my entire life. Awesome. Did you also stay here for college or where'd you end up going for college? Uh, I went to Wake Forest University. Okay. So a couple of years down in North Carolina and then after college came back to the DMV. Okay. Growing up here in uh, McLean, Northern Virginia area, how were you as a, as a little kid growing up? Were you, what were you into? Oh, man, I played a lot of soccer. Uh, so I was on a bunch of different teams, uh, did travel, high school, indoor, outdoor. Um, so pretty much just played soccer kind of year round uh, until I went to college. I also was like really into snowboarding, which doesn't really square well with being in the DMV, but I uh, grew up in high school, like driving to all the nearby mountains and snowboarding in their parks and learning how to do that. So yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm curious, growing up, David, did you have any back then that you can remember any entrepreneurial tendencies or any events that, that sort of impacted you? Yeah. I mean, I, um, entrepreneurial tendencies, I think to me, entrepreneurship is a mindset about approaching things differently. Um, so I, I have always like hustled and figured out different ways to like approach things and make money. Um, so I don't know, I've never been one just to sit in the status quo and just like take things at face value as people tell them to me. Um, which in like in school upon reflecting, like I always had like really great relationships with teachers and they were the teachers that saw that and saw how I acted as like, not just accepting things as they were. And I also had really bad relationships with certain teachers in certain classes where like I wasn't just following like the paradigm of what they wanted. Um, I also was like constantly side hustling in high school, especially um, more for just like selfish interests to try to figure out like how to get some cash to like buy a video game or I don't know, do something fun with a friend. What, what were you side hustling in high school? Oh, I would do all sorts of things. I would find like any job that would pay me the most amount of money. 
Um, I didn't care what it was. I just wanted like the best hourly rate. And then I also like in high school and college would troll Craigslist just looking for like good, easy cash opportunities. So like, I, I think like probably the worst one is I stood as Santa Claus in the middle of 123 uh, for a UPS store for two days around Christmas time, but the cash pay was good because no one else wanted to do it. Yeah. I mean, Craigslist is a great idea. Even now there's people flipping, you know, you can buy things for cheap or even sometimes for free and they, they just resell it online. Yeah. 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 So I don't know, like I, uh, I always was just like passionate about uh, figuring things out in a different way. And my dad is an entrepreneur. And so I grew up also watching him uh, build the company he's, he's built, which I'm very proud of. And saw the like tremendous amount of work effort that he put into it. Um, and, and seeing that nothing was a given, I think was pretty powerful too. It's something that you have to wake up and make happen and create and like drive at every day. So that, that was pretty inspiring to me. I went to, when I went to college, I wanted to study entrepreneurship and his advice was don't um, go get a hard skill set like go get a comm sci degree or finance degree or something that's going to get you in the door as a starting point. And so mm-hmm. I ended up taking that advice, which was really great advice. So I have an accounting and finance background, which um, after getting through the CPA, I vowed to try to never do accounting on my own ever. Um, but it's been a core skill set for me that's allowed me to understand how a business operates, distill it, simplify it, like develop the uh, formulas to drive like that drive revenue or expense structures. So it was really great advice and is like continues to serve me well. That's great. You know, the, the numbers are very important. I, I'm curious, what type of business did your dad have growing up? Um, he runs a financial planning company. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. G- great advice. I, I, I remember I went here to Maryland, University of Maryland, and their business school, they, they do also have an entrepreneurship program. And I took a class or two there as well. I majored in econ economics. And there is a lot of people, you know, entrepreneurship ideals. And I, I don't know in the end if anything really happened as far as anything fully developed. I still remember one kid in one of my classes, he was trying to develop some kind of energy drink. Uh, so no, but th- that's great advice your dad gave you. Yeah, I think like it's, uh, jumping into school for like kids, I like, I think it's really important that we're teaching design thinking, solutions oriented thinking, product development, project planning, um, problem statement identification. Uh, there are all the core things that like when you're in these businesses every day that are coming at you kind of like full faucet. Um, and it's really, those are like really critical skill sets. Like how do you, how do you see problem statements? How do you be solutions oriented? How do you prioritize the right approaches to solving the problems? When the product's in the market, how do you prioritize the right things that need to get built and deployed? Um, that, that is like, that's how you, I think you start to see like the entrepreneurial spirit and identity into, into people. That's great. So at Wake Forest, David, you said you majored in accounting and finance, and then you also mentioned their CPA. So I assume, did you go sort of the accounting CPA route after college? No, I, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I, I left college, I think probably the only unemployed accounting major in the program, uh, which I don't think the school is super happy with. Um, and so 
No, I actually left college to try to start a nonprofit. Um, it didn't work. I was like bumming around different friends' houses after, after college and uh, fortuitously got a phone call. My resume through a family friend got dropped at um, what is now Route 66 Ventures. And I ended up joining them on their accounting and finance team. Um, and then very quickly leaving with one of the head partners that was co-founding a real estate startup. And so through kind of like a series of fortuitous events, I did do some accounting um, for an operating company for a little bit, but then very quickly just became an operator. Um, And so it did open up a door and a huge opportunity for me. It helped me build some like very core relationships that are foundational to my career um, thus far uh, through 66. How long were you with them? Um, I've been around them for about a decade now. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. And so I have like a couple of different phases of my journey. So I, I joined one of their old operating companies and then uh, two, of the, two of the guys, the founder of the operating company and my boss, the CFO, uh, started a real estate fund and it was called the American Home. And so about a year in, I left and actually joined the fund full time. And the American Home, I spent five years there and Route 66 was a major investor and a core part of it, but spent five years there and we uh, were private equity backed. So we raised capital and then we bought up single family homes, foreclosed homes. This was in 2010, starting in 2010. Um, So we bought up foreclosed single family homes around the Southeastern United States and renovated them and then rented them out. So we built a rental housing REIT, but out of single family rentals. Um, So did that for five years. We ended up selling that company. Um, And it's there that like a lot of the ideas and my passion for Till came about. And then when we sold the American home, Route 66, now has like a really great fintech venture capital arm. Um, They're now actually expanding into health tech as well. But at the time I rejoined them, I spent three years doing fintech and early stage credit investing. Um, And that is like the second core experience that brought me to Till. So really the American home taught me that, at the American home, I became like incredibly passionate about the resident as a consumer, talking about like, identifying problem statements. Like when you're in rental housing, you're sitting there and just waves of delinquency are hitting you every month. And when you're, when you control the rent expense, you control the biggest expense in a person's life. And it happens to them every single month. And so whether you like it or not, you're in that person's financial life at least. And you hear about it when problems arise. And so I started growing really interested in how a resident who pays most of their income to rent who has limited savings gets through these cash hardships. Um, I also got really interested in the fact that like the, the landlord and the property management industry is so backwards. Like it's starting to accelerate now and there's a lot of prop tech capital coming in, which is dramatically needed, but like landlords don't understand a renter. That's like a starting point. And then they don't understand a renter as like their circumstances change throughout like their journey as a customer with you. And so I grew interested in like, how do we develop solutions that allow the landlords to better work with the renter, to actually like see them as a human and meet them where they are in their financial life and circumstances and to work with them. And so we started doing that at the American Home in a very analog, like one-on-one 
way and we started seeing like oh wow like when you actually work with the renter and you meet them where they are um you know you actually deliver a positive experience and when you do that you as a landlord actually make more money in the long run they're more likely to make the payment when they need to they're more likely to renew and stay longer because you're actually willing to work with them and so we actually found that like i i fundamentally believe that you can do really good and do really well financially by improving the relationship sitting between these two historically adversarial sides. What were some things you implemented there at American Home to help between, between that relationship between landlord and renter? You said it started there. Yeah, so um, the first thing that we did is we started aligning the lease end dates to times of the year when uh, it helped people the most. Like, Having a lease end in like February doesn't help anyone. No one wants to like transition in February. The second thing we did is we started thinking about how we could offer like risk adjusted experiences. And then we started incentivizing the best renters. So you wanted the best renters to stay. Most people like at a renewal, most uh, renters just receive the exact same offer. Like everyone's rents going up 5% across the board. Here's like the offer. We hope you stay. And in rental housing, like 30 to 50% of your customers leave every year. And so we started identifying, hey, here are renters that have been really great, that are succeeding really well. We want them to stay. Like, we want to give them a better experience. What if we offered them a new, like, refrigerator or a new, new carpet or carpet cleaning or paint? Like, how do we make their home better feel like their home? Like, what do they want? You tell us. Like, you can have one of these three or four things. Um, and people really appreciated that. They saw that you were investing in them and their life and they stayed longer and our turnover rates reflected that. And so the programs immediately paid for themselves. They allowed the resident to get something they wanted, um, and allowed us to invest in the home, which was an asset for us on our balance sheet. That's great. I love that, David. So you mentioned on average in the industry, 30 to 50% turnover every year, correct? Mm -hmm. Because the typical lease of a, of a resident is 12 months on average. Yep. Okay. So then while you, while you started doing this and implementing some of these strategies and basically just opening the lines of communication with them and asking them, what do you want? What are they looking for? What can we do so they can renew? What, what did that churn? I'm sure it went down. Do you remember as far as it went from 30 to 50 industry average to what then? Yeah, we started seeing 10 to 20% improvements. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's big. Okay. Yeah, Amer before you sold, you said American Home was sold eventually. So how many doors did you did you guys build it up to before it was sold? Uh, just under 3,000. Wow, 3,000. And that's, this is all southeast of the U.S., right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who bought it, Blackstone or something? No, uh, although I think they have an investment in it now. We sold to a, the first publicly traded SFR REIT called Silver Bay. Okay. And then they have since sold to Tricon. And I think Tricon has an investment by Blackstone, I think. So maybe yeah. by a roundabout way. Now, you mentioned also, uh, Vent is it Venture 66? No. Route 66. Route, Route 66, I'm sorry. For, for those who don't know, can you explain who they are and what they do? Yeah, uh, they are um, a local DC-based uh, venture capital group. Um, they primarily focus in the fintech space, but they're expanding into health tech as well. And they have an amazing team, like deep, deep expertise and knowledge in both of the arenas. Um, and they've made a whole bunch of different 
fintech investments. And it, it was a great learning experience for me because I started seeing how the applications across like payments, insurance, credit access, underwriting or new risk management models, um, how, the, how some of those ideas could come together and be highly applicable in the world of rental housing. Um, I'm curious, at Route 66, you decided to go into the operational role of some of these investments they had instead of sort of sitting on the VC principal role, right? It, yeah, I served as a couple things. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I spent some time operationalizing credit investments for them. So we would invest or they invest um, like 10 to $50 million in structural size uh, credit access or credit facilities for early stage lenders. And so when, if you've heard of like the SOFIs and lending clubs and Avants of the world, mm -hmm. all, all of those early stage lenders have to go through their own like growth and evolutionary cycles. Um, and they often depend on external capital to get to the scale that they are today where most people have heard of them. And so we, uh, one way we would invest is we would invest credit structures or credit facilities behind these companies to help them build and originate credit and prove out their credit models and prove out their business models. Um, so we, I did some of that. Um, we also, they make a lot of equity investments and I helped work on some of that. Um, and then towards the end of my time, I spent most, most of my time focused on um, like six months or so exploring what to build. Um, there are a lot of ideas sitting behind Till and some other things that at the time I was thinking through. And so I sat in an EIR role, um, which really is just like time and space to, to think through and design and plan a company build. And they were incredibly gracious giving me that space, um, which has allowed Till to really get started. Okay. So T Tilt was formed after American Home was sold, right? Yeah. Till was started in 2018. Okay. Okay. And that was the evolution of that. So if, if you can explain to the audience, what is Till exactly? Yeah. So um, Till is a, uh, is in a financial experience application for residents and a, tech-driven servicing layer for landlords. And so our mission is to use personalized financial experiences that transform the way residents access, pay, and stay in their home while improving the landlord's uh, property management, resident engagement uh, functions, and NOI. So that's what we set out to do. Um, we have a core product in market today called Flexible Rent. And what flexible rent does is it steps in and takes the concept and notion that all leases have to be 12 months a year with rent due on the first and throws that away. We say, actually, like no one gets paid on the first of the month. No one even gets paid on the 30th of the month, right? Like we all have really dynamic and complex financial lives. And so we take that notion, throw it away, and we re-underwrite the renter's ability uh, to pay based on their cash flow. And so we then design personalized lease structures and payment structures for the renter that unlocks their ability and willingness to make a payment. So uh, there's, really, there's really two renter types. 
that we work with and that landlords work with, right? You have your on-time payers and you have people that are delinquent or maybe facing even eviction risk. And so the program works with both on-time renters and those that are delinquent. For an on-time renter, we develop personalized payment schedules that allow them to better budget, proactively budget, save and pay for rent. So it keeps rent prioritized and it takes the biggest expense, with, which is like the hardest one to manage in your financial life and just makes it automatic. Then for a delinquent renter, we step in and we help stabilize them and then move them to become an on-time payer. And so we design personal schedules for the delinquent renter that says, hey, auto might like need all of February to pay for February's rent, but we can underwrite you and, and know that you're gonna be able to make the payment. It's very different. Landlords today, if a renter can't pay rent, they have no idea what's going on. They then charge a highly punitive payday loan like late fee to the renter on the fifth of the month. And then they're filing eviction and charging the renter the legal filing fee on the 15th of the month, which makes no sense for the majority of residents that are employed that just need a little bit more time. And so we, we offer the landlord comfort that the resident is employed, has income and can make payments. And we give that resident time to get back on track. And so we'll design for this delinquent renter, a personalized payment plan that says, hey, you have like this schedule in the month of February to make your February rent. And then from there, once we've stabilized that rent coming in, we start to move the delinquent renter to become an on-time payer over time without exacerbating their ability to pay. Interesting. In, in this example, David, you, so this renter needs, let's say, all of February to pay February's rent instead. Of, so instead of the first, maybe he pays everything by, I don't know, the 20th, the 21st, who knows. So then for March, does that, does that continue as well? They end up paying full of March at the end of March? Yeah, that's a great question. So no, we start moving them forward. And so it kind of depends on the personal cash flow, right? But let's say you're able to make, what we found actually, this is a better starting point for the answer. What we found actually is that like when we work with renters, we're usually receiving 40 to 50% of the rent before the late date anyway. So with almost everyone we're working with, we're getting 40 or 50% of the thousand dollars, let's call it $400 uh, today, February 5th. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to say like, oh, over one more or two more or three more payments, this is how we're going to collect the remaining balance of rent. Most people are fully paid before the last day of the month. And so then like another payment can come due that starts prepaying or pre-saving for March's rent. So then they're a little bit further ahead for March, and then they're even further ahead for April, and then they're likely on time by May. Interesting. Okay. So this is a software then that both the landlord and the resident is using? Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. It, so in order for the resident to use this, I'm sure the landlord has to accept this or how does that work as far as the landlord being in this program or working with Till? Yeah, so we distribute through landlord partnerships. So we are a B2B to C distribution strategy. Um, and we work primarily in the institutional housing space. So that is groups that own or manage at least 200 units. Okay. Okay. Um, most of our partners are managing 2000 to 20,000 
And we also work with some of the biggest players in the country that have a hundred to 200,000 plus units. Um, so it, we primarily work in the institutional housing space. Um, when a landlord onboards us, there's a couple different ways we deploy the program into their community. Um, some communities, the landlords want like uh, full adoption. Some communities, the landlords want it to be optional. Um, the majority of our communities are optional today. And so we have different kind of marketing and resident engagement uh, processes that we go through to get renters to hear about the program um, and then to step into it. And we found, we found them to be really powerful. So like our top 30 communities that have been on the platform for six months have uh, 25 to 50% uh, application rates for the program. Okay, wow. Are, are, are most of the communities that you're involved with, are they class A, B, C type of properties? Is there a specific type that you? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. So we started more in the class B and C and workforce housing space. I mean, there's big delinquency challenges in that space pre-COVID. So just like to set context, when we step into this market, there's in a normal pre-COVID year, there's about $50 billion of delinquent rent um, char that charges renters about $5 billion of late fees, um, which only exacerbates their ability to pay and their credit risk. The same exact demographic, this renter demographic, um, is borrowing about $50 billion of payday loans every year. So if you combine the two problems, you have about $100 billion of liquidity challenge for renters. They're like, mm -hmm. we need to redesign and help them with. Like that is fundamental to help people's access to housing. So initially, like we were spending a lot of time in the BC and workforce space. Um, we don't do section eight today, but we do actively work in LIHTC sponsored deals. Um, and then like, it's been interesting uh, we've started signing a lot of class A partnerships recently and even like more interesting from more interesting than just seeing like the landlord or the owner manager be interested is the residents are interested and we're seeing really good application and demand rates. And it's right. Like I, as a renter, um, I, I rented for probably 10 years of my life and am now lucky to own a home, but in both situations, even though I never like faced an eviction risk, I would want this program because it's a better way to budget and manage the payment. Like I would want this program to help pay my own mortgage. Banks are behind the curve too. And so I think there's just a really big long-term opportunity in both class A and even home ownership down the line um, to help people better budget, save and access financial solutions towards making housing more affordable. I, I love this. So let's say I, I, I'm a renter. So you said it's optional for renters in most of the communities, right? Yep. Okay. So if I want to do this, is there a monthly fee that I pay as a renter? How does it work? Do I have to put in my, you know, weekly income, biweekly income or? Yeah. So uh, what does it cost and how does it work? I'll hit on kind of both those separately. So um, Till makes money by managing delinquency. Um, that's our revenue model. Um, some landlords pay for it it's mostly paid for by the renter and for the renter it's between $9 and $15 a month and the like value proposition. So I always get asked like, why would a renter pay for that? Um, isn't that a problem? And the answer is like, no, the value they get is insanely good. We have pre-negotiated away late fees and eviction filings as long as they are successfully enrolled in the program. 
And when like when renters enroll, so that means if, let's say a renter pays $10 for the month. Um, they're immediately saving likely 50 to a hundred dollars in a late fee and a, like 200 to $300 in the eviction filing fee. So they're already in the money by a couple hundred dollars plus like the stress of not having to be evicted plus like the stress reduction, sorry, stress reduction of not being evicted and the stress reduction of being able to succeed. So what we found is like when we put renters on these personalized payment structures, like the, the collection success rates are amazing. Like 90% of people that come to us today start in a delinquent status. Um, and by month two, our cash success collection rate is like 98, 99%. They're taking someone that literally cannot pay the landlord and they are immediately successful on this program. Um, so it's created really powerful outcomes for residents, which has created a little bit of virality um, and word of mouth. Like we don't operate direct to consumer today, but uh, 30% of our demand uh, volume from the consumer is from consumers outside of the communities we serve. So like that's been interesting to watch. And then um, it creates really powerful testimonials and case studies for the landlords as well. We, we, like, we have a eviction protection part of this program where a landlord has to adopt this, but as part of flexible rent, we'll say we'll, we'll recover delinquent balances before you evict them and before you sell it as bad debt. And landlords are like, yeah, right. There's no way renters are going to work with you. We're like, okay, like it's really no risk to you. Why don't you try it? And then we show up two months later and we're like, Hey, these 10 renters have all like engaged, paid you like a hundred thousand dollars of back rent. They still owe like a hundred thousand dollars, but look what's happening. They're paying. And in like three or four more months, you're going to be caught up. And they're always like, the landlord's always like, oh my God, how is that possible? And it's possible because residents historically don't trust landlords. Landlords historically have not been like super friendly and amenable to working with them. And there's actually like just a really important benefit of being an independent third party here. Like we put a contract in place to run this program that works with the renter, the landlord and till. And we effectively arbitrage the opportunity to work between these two that historically have entrenched against each other. Landlords will say like, I'm not collecting a partial payment because I need to get paid in full. Otherwise I lose my eviction rights. And the renter says, if the landlord is willing to take a partial payment, I'm concerned about giving you any of my money upfront because if I end up getting evicted, I need some like sources, like resources to go find my next housing situation and solution. David, this is awesome. I love this, man. Thank you. <laughs> it, 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 it works for all the parties, uh, you know, from the, from the tenant perspective, the, let's say the 10 bucks they pay you per month. It's nothing compared to at least 50 plus if they were to get charged a late fee plus everything else with courts and everything. Plus the landlord, from what you're telling me, it's free for them to incorporate this program and offer it to their residents. Right. And now they're getting rent that they may have not gotten and then go through the whole process of turning a unit over. Plus before that, the fees and the court and everything else. Yeah, we help landlords actually make a lot more money. So they, they have to be willing to work with the renter. Um, that's how we like open up our conversations. Some landlords are like straight up, these landlords do exist. Like we love late fees. 
And if people don't pay, we're evicting them. Like, okay, that's like one perspective. And like, that is going to bite you in the next five years as the market turn, turns to be resident centric and focus on customer experience. But that, that exists in the world. Um, the reality is they are nearsighted because when you actually start working with the renter, like we are stabilizing their cash flows. We actually increase on-time collection rates and we now have the data to prove it. Um, and we're reducing the amount of time the site teams or the property management teams spend managing delinquency. And so when you actually look at property managers, property managers turn over as much as renters turn over. And there's like two core reasons they don't like their job. One is package management. Like the number of Amazon boxes hitting them is obnoxious. And there's actually a couple of cool startups dealing with that problem. The second is delinquency management. Like what property manager wants to put an eviction notice on an irate renter's door? What property manager wants to like entangle themselves in a delinquency argument? or like bang on someone's door and like put themselves physically at risk? And the answer is nobody. Everyone hates dealing with that. And so property managers, like we take on all of the like delinquency burden and they send us renters that need help. And so we've really found that like when we do that job well, the property manager uh, really supports the program and it helps us expand it like more broadly into portfolios. I completely believe that you're getting some of that feedback from some landlords and hopefully it is the minority, not the majority saying we love late fees, forget it. It is just very short-sighted. And like you said, it's, it's affecting them, their team, the property manager. And like you said, they, the turnover is crazy. So it's making the property manager's lives easier. Plus all the costs associated with turning that unit over. I mean, if you're coming in, replacing flooring, repainting. Yeah, that's right. An average eviction will cost a landlord five to $10,000. There you go. Wow. I, I, I'm shocked you don't have landlords lining up, David, to use it. We have a really big growth pipeline. That's good. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. 2021 is going to be a really fun year. It's already started out as a really fun year. Um, and we also have a uh, product pipeline that's coming together really nicely um, that we'll be announcing uh, with some really fun PR in the next two quarters. So flexible rent to us is a starting point. Um, there's a whole platform in development right now that uh, is just going to further accelerate the impact to renters and the, uh, the ability for landlords to manage more effectively. I'm curious, Ken, or can this be used? I, I know most of it is just on the residential side. What about commercial with uh, the business business owner, the tenant to the landlord? Yeah, there's some really cool applications of this in the, into the commercial space. Um, it's not where we're focused right now. Okay. Someone, should, someone should build it or we should go there in the future. Um, but there's enough nuance and complexity to what we do. Like at the heart of everything we do is uniquely understanding the renter. So we have a whole data science function that's focused on that. How do we better improve schedule creation, schedule intelligence, understand the renter's ability and willingness to pay. How do we bring risk-based solutions into this market? How do we then help the landlord take that understanding and apply it to their relationship with the renter? And so there's so much nuanced complexity to just serving this market well. And this market's also like infinitely big. It's it is. insane. It's like, a third of our country rents. It's 120 million people. It's 700 
billion dollars of annual rental payments. Like landlords spend $50 billion a year on property management costs and lose $25 billion a year on eviction costs. Like the market is so stupid big. And so for today, like we are just a dog with a bone down this path. Okay. You mentioned earlier about 30% of so you're, you're hearing that people are just consumers are coming directly to you, not through the landlord. Is that the case? Yeah, it's been interesting. Like we call them um, and we've been asking like, how have you heard about us? And it's been like, oh, my mom's a property manager at this property and loves what you're doing. Or my cousin's using your program was telling all of us about it the other night. Um, so it's been interesting to see it start to spin into the market and we're trying to figure out what to do with that right now. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. So in that situation, unless the landlord's involved with the program, you can't do anything then, right? Yeah, today, no. Uh, okay. Our product roadmap will start to unlock that in the future. Wow. You have some great things coming. Yeah, we're excited about it, man. It's, it's a fun space to innovate in because there's so many problems. That's actually the hard thing is like what to do next and how to like invest capital wisely because you could be doing too much uh, at once. What would you say, David, that drives you and motivates you now? Uh, I'm, I'm motivated by one number, which is uh, total active users that we hit. So I like, I started this cause I wanted to change the way the rental housing space operates. Um, it's a really big ship to turn. And there's, what's great is like, there's a lot of cool prop techs in the market. Now I, I more narrowly define this as rent tech. And so it's all of us turning the ship. It is not just till, but we are building. And my priority is always that we are building towards white space that others don't see and they're not building towards. And so for me, it's how many like people can we impact? And if we impact enough renters, we then create enough value for landlords. We then as like, we have a core mission behind what we're doing. And there's definitely like that thread through the business and our team and our culture, but like we're VC backed, we're like a for-profit company. And there's ways for us to make a lot of money and create a lot of value in the market for ourselves and our investors um, by doing this the right way. But the, like the core North star for our team and product design is uh, number of users we hit and percent of on-time payments um, that we complete successfully. If you don't mind sharing, I know you said you said you started in 2018. So you're now over two years. What was the beginning? How many active users you had two, two, three years ago to where you are now and, and the other number as well? Yeah. So we've taken this product to market nine months ago. This product is actually pretty new. We took okay. it. Actually, Flexible Rent hit market April 1st of 2020, um, which we had been building in Q1. And then as COVID was hitting, uh, we accelerated as much as we possibly could. So that was just like lucky timing. Um, and over the last nine months, we've deployed it into now 55,000 units around the market. Um, and our like core goal this year is to be in 250,000 units. Wow. From zero to 55,000. And then you said this year, 250,000. Yeah, that's the growth goal. What, what's the delinquency rate you've noticed? Oh, it's pretty wild. So um, we're seeing in like uh, class A, anywhere from like five to 15%. We're seeing in class B and C anywhere from 10 to 30%. Um, 
which is pretty enormous. Uh, so I think like, and we've been seeing numbers get more challenged. So it was interesting to see like the public kind of PR around rent for a while, especially in like the summer of last year, everyone said, Oh, rent's fine. And it was fine because when you look at the resident cash data that we have, um, yeah, rent like on an annualized basis went up 30 to 40% above annualized baseline trends. Like people were better off with stimulus hitting or the unemployment checks hitting. And you saw it in the data. And then starting around October, stimulus faded, savings were starting to fade. And we started seeing incomes like 20 to 30% below trailing six and 12 month annualized averages. Like, uh oh, like <laughs> here comes delinquency. And sure enough, like then, then we saw it like a month or two later, NMHC's delinquency reports were showing, you know, a six point increase in delinquent rent month over month and year over year. And so um, I think like getting more stimulus is needed in the market. Like Biden's new stimulus program is going to help prop up this market for a while longer, but it's not creating jobs. Like there is a K-shaped recovery occurring. Um, and like, that's going to disproportionately impact rental housing and it's impacting the renter's ability to pay. Um, and it's fascinating. Like we see it in the data, like we see a renter transition from being employed into unemployment. And we see it because we can see the paycheck stop and unemployment checks start. So that's like pretty powerful information that um, helps us better work with renters, but it's pretty wild to see from a macro perspective as well. So how does that work, David? Are you able to see their account or do they have direct deposit programs through Till? Is that, how, okay. Yeah, so when we underwrite the renter, we underwrite and build a schedule based on their ability to pay. So we run cash flow analytics um, as part of our, like our underwriting tool that allows us to, it's all anonymized and like um, we basically strip all the PII and get rid of it. And it allows us to like very uh, effectively understand the renter and, and tailor a lease structure or payment structure to their ability to pay. The, the like kind of secondary output of that is like we get to start studying like pretty macro uh, economic trends in terms of ability to pay and cash stability and income profiles. Okay. And this is proprietary. This is only for you until you don't show this to the landlord or anything else, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Interesting. David, I know this is just the start of your career, but what would you say you're most proud of thus far? Um, in everything you've done. I'm really proud of a couple things. Um, I learned a lot and was very grateful to for the chances I've been given. Um, like, I'm very grateful for the people that mentor and invest in me because there's a lot of them. Um, and like that, I am constantly seeking the painful and steep learning curves. It's what I enjoy and what propels me forward. But in going through those, those are, there's like a lot of hard things and stress and like learning is painful most of the time. So there's a lot of people that have been sitting around me supporting me uh, and even like believing in me and the ideas sometimes before I believe in myself and the ideas. Um, so I'd say I'm most proud of like finding those people um, 
and trying to be like humble enough to sit and hear what they're saying. Uh, even though like my personality is pretty stubborn and independent a lot of the times. Um, but I, I like, I was really proud of the American home and building that and getting it to the point it did and selling it and putting that into a good place. Um, but I'd say I'm like probably most proud of building what we're doing here. Uh, it's like really hard to create something from scratch and like get the momentum behind it. And it always takes longer than I want. Like it, you have to get the idea into market, get proof points, raise money, put a team together, have that team working. And the thing I am most proud of now is our team. Like we have an incredible group of people sitting behind Till. Um, everyone is smarter than me. Everyone like the right people are starting to tell us what to do. Like the right people join and they're like immediately step change the function that they're stepping into and like improve it. And like, that's the most fun thing for me to watch is like, hiring amazing people getting out of the way and seeing them accelerate the like the engine and model into the world and and like make it their own like i have really like fundamental beliefs in where those things should go and a lot of like creative energy flowing into the company company um and they do a good job like digesting it as quickly as possible but like then they make it their own and that's like the most fun thing to me like one of our core values at Till is everyone is an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship is a mindset. And like you are expected to step in and see problems, be solutions oriented, make decisions, take action and like do your own thing. And so I'm like probably most proud of our team coming together to take on this concept and like push it into the world themselves. I love that you just mentioned team. And like you said, the team is huge and very important. Surrounding yourself with the right team, with the right people. How do you find them? How do you go about hiring them? What's the process like? Sales. <laughs> Every, like the thing I've learned the most over the last couple of years is everything is sales. Capital raising is sales. Hiring is sales. Sales is sales. Um, and sales sometimes has a negative connotation, but I think it's all about like telling a story and getting people bought into making the world a certain way in the future. That's true with like landlords. Like, do you want to be part of the story? Do you want to be a forward thinking landlord that's going to change the way like rental paradigms can work? People like, do you want to be a leader? Do you want to, are you like cool stepping in and taking seed stage, series A stage risk? Like this thing can fail. You can be out of a job in nine months. Like that's a reality. You're either a person that like is scared by that or that's not the right point in your life to do that or you're fired up and you're going to wake up like enthusiastic and overly energized because we have an opportunity to change like how the world functions um so we think of it as like telling the right narrative into the market and then we run like very structured processes so for people we activate networks that we have we use our venture networks um, we run a active recruiting campaign through LinkedIn recruiter where we go find like, what are the top 20 schools that have these candidates coming out of? What are the top 20 companies that have these candidates coming out of? What is the profile of the candidate? Go identify like 30 to 50 people that would be the most amazing hire you possibly could friend, all of them, ask them for referrals, ask them if they're interested. Um, and then we use recruiters in like very select spots as well. So we take like a three prong approach to it. And usually find that after like 100 to 200 candidates identified per position, we can recruit a like very strong, like top 1% A player. That's great. What are the positions you're typically hiring for now? 
Um, we're really focused on growth and engineering right now. So we're just PSA. Um, we're hiring front end, back end uh, engineers. We're hiring a, a data and business analyst. Um, we're hiring two SDRs onto our growth and partnerships team. Um, and we're also hiring a partnerships lead to, to work with landlords. Okay. I'm curious, David, how has COVID affected, you know, the team as far as are, are they working remotely? Are they in the office and the culture and everything? Yeah, COVID's been a challenge and an opportunity all at once. I think probably similar for everyone. Like there's just like the people stress that is real life. Like, oh my God, we're in a pandemic. Um, and then like the political stress of last year and then the racial tension stress of last year, like that's real stuff and it impacts people. Um, and as much as like, I want everyone to be like 150% focused on the thing we have in front of us, like you also have to recognize that these things are real life and we all have to like also navigate life. Um, we went remote very early, kind of like before everyone did. Um, it was an early gut call and a good one. And we've actually decided to stay remote centric. Um, we've opened up, it's been hard. Like we cut our expenses really dramatically. Like we went into cash preservation mode really aggressively at the beginning. Then as confidence grew with this product and market, we've started hiring and investing more aggressively. We're now being very aggressive with the opportunity, but it's scary, man. Like, like shutting down offices, having to close down leases, like redo forecasts, um, like it, that was real life and that impacted team and people and all of that. And so uh, that was hard. And I think probably not dissimilar to probably everybody and what they were going through. We're really excited though. Like we've learned to work really productively, like asynchronous writing and communication is key. Um, and we've really improved there. I think like the amount of work output and effectiveness is super high right now, which is really exciting. Um, I think like relationships are missing. Like Zoom can be super transactional. Like you can hop on and be like, da 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 da. All right, next Zoom. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And so, like, I'm excited to get back to some of the re more relational, like, hangout time, like happy hours, lunches. Um, so we'll go back, like, to in person at least once a month, where we'll fly everybody in and just spend time building relationships and doing like creative planning work. Um, but we're going to stay remote first because we've been hiring talent from around the country and the talent's amazing. Like I will never restrict a talent pool to a certain city ever again. It makes no sense. Um, and I think like, that's great for people too. Like people want to live where they want to live. And like, you know, why does that matter? As long as people are willing to get together and build relationships in person, some like, I think you can build a really powerful remote centric company. I love that. I like that a lot. What advice would you give someone if they came to you and they wanted to start off their new venture, whatever, whether it's in rent tech or prop tech or anything? Oh, uh, what advice? I would say I have a lot of learnings from this. Um, first, share. first talk to like, don't start is probably my first advice. Um, don't formally start, start your activity, but don't formally start doing anything. Spend three months deeply exploring and understanding the problem statement you're about to jump into. 
And the question, they, they should go find any, as many experts in their field with their idea as they possibly can and look for signal. And they, the signal they should be looking for is, are like the bleeding edge thinkers or leading thinkers in your space and market interested and starting to believe in the narrative that you're crafting? And do you have the ability to refine and iterate your narrative via every conversation? And they should see the excitement build through every conversation where people like, the first time I pitched the idea of Till, I pitched it to two really close friends and partners at Route 66. And they're like, ah, oh, no, like that's a freaking stupid idea. Uh, one's an investor. One is a very close friend of mine. And like a month later, I came back to them. I was like, all right, I think you're right. Like that made no sense. Let me tell you about this version of it. And they were like, oh, okay. Like kind of see that. What about this angle? And so I don't think the first idea is ever that good. I think you have to go through that discovery process. And the discovery process, the things someone should see is people starting to say, if you do this, I will give you money. Like, if you do this, I'm willing to like angel invest in you. Go get some proof points. Then I would say, don't take the money, but go figure out how to get proof points for free. Um, I, I took a seed check, a pre-seed check before we had those proof points. And I, I think it actually delayed me getting to those proof points. So I'd say, once you're there, go do the hustle. Go like figure out how to hack your way into proof points behind the idea before you ever take a dollar and before you ever take like set up an LLC or a C Corp or incorporate or do whatever. Like once the thing gets moving, the distractions are real and the paper cuts are real. And really the core proof point you're looking for after you've iterated your idea a bunch of times and people have said like, this is good enough. I'd give you money, which is very clear signal. And you have a customer or a few customers like, engaging with you somehow that's giving you those proof points the real thing and the piece of advice then comes and it is like are you willing to work 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week for the next 10 years on this idea alone like if you're in it for like to quickly make money there's much better ways to quickly make money um it has to be like beyond financial to step into these things and make them truly great. Um, and I think that that is like the moment of clarity, like the a founder needs to actually like take on the self-sacrifice and the pain um, and the build efforts required to keep going. That's great advice, David. What would you say is your biggest challenge right now with your role at Till? Um, my biggest challenge at Till I'm evolving, like my leadership is having to evolve. Like I can competently help and assist and lead lots of different functions. Like I've been forced to figure that out, like sales, marketing, product, you know, tech strategy, um, capital raising, hiring, like you're forced to go through all of those things. Um, and right now, like we've installed such a great leadership team over every function we are closing one last core lead role over uh, marketing this week, actually. Um, and I'm having to evolve my own leadership style to be 
really working with and through others um, in a more high impact way. So that's just like kind of another phase of learning in this environment. So yeah, that's great. You mentioned earlier, we are working on some new things that are coming out here shortly, but what's the vision? What does the next couple of years look like? Yeah. So the vision is to, uh, to diversify the value propositions for all resident, uh, all resident types. So there's certain products that on-time payers um, are going to really thrive with that we're going to bring to market. And then there's certain products that delinquent payers can actually like speed up their ability to pay and become on time. Um, and then there's, there's products that serve kind of both renter consumers that improve their basic financial foundation and further gamify and incentivize their performance in the home. And as those things come together, um, for the landlord, what we'll start to see is a really like intelligent tech driven and automated servicing solution come out that will augment what a property manager is capable of doing. And so I think we'll see a transformation of how landlords manage. It's like, why would a property manager manage without a computer? Or why would a property manager manage without a property management system that's out there today? And like a great ledger. Well, we want to sit as like a third layer in that logic stack. It's like, of course, a property manager has, uh, has a computer. And of course, they have a property management system. And we are not going to go be one of those. But And of course, they have TIL and their resident engagement and their servicing solution. It's a great vision. I like that. So, yeah. Last question. What do you like to do for fun when you're not busy working at TIL? Uh, my life is... Uh, my identity is pretty narrow right now. So uh, it's till, and then I also have uh, an amazing wife and three little kids. So I have a six-year-old, four-year-old, and a two-year-old, a daughter and two boys. Um, and that's pretty much it, man. That's all consuming. Yeah. I, uh, in, my, in my personal free time, when I'm not <laughs> doing those two things, uh, I am a triathlete. I like doing like cycling and running. Um, we've been spending time down in Charleston, South Carolina during some of the pandemic. So I've been learning to kite surf. Um, and I'm just like, I am an avid lover of the ocean surfing, just being out in the water, I don't know, swimming. So I actually want to get into kite surfing. Um, I know, um, outer banks had some good, has some good areas with winds there. I've never tried it, but I, I want to get into that. Yeah. Hatteras has some amazing, uh, wind. Yeah. I heard, I heard. I, I, I need to try it out though. It's uh, it's, it's pretty thrilling, man. <laughs> I, I understand. I have three kids of my own. I have three boys though, but I get it. And when we're not busy working, you know, the family takes up a lot of time. Totally. How old yeah. are they? My oldest is nine and then I have seven and then a four-year-old. Awesome. All yeah. right. <laughs> David. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it, man. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for the conversation, Otto. Where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or Till? Um, yeah, you can check out hellotill.com, which is Till's website. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, David Sullivan. There's about a thousand of us, so look for the one uh, that incorporates Till as well. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at Homes and Homies. Great. Thanks again, David. Really, really appreciate it. All right. See ya. Take care. Bye.
If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you, and I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.